All right, well, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. So we'll be jumping right in this morning. Matthew chapter 11. You can pick up a pew Bible, open to the first book of the New Testament as well to follow along. Because our time is a little bit short on a communion Sunday, but this text is big. And by big, I mean heavy, significant, I think pound for pound or verse for verse. Maybe one of the weightiest passages in Matthew. That'll be Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30, end of the chapter. Now, as you're turning it, the quickest of reminders, what have we learned so far as we're going through Matthew verse by verse? Chapters 1 through 2 took us through the birth narrative of Jesus, revealing this Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. And then chapters 3 and 4, we saw the beginning of his messianic ministry from his baptism by John to his temptation by the devil in the wilderness. And after that, Jesus formally began his ministry. He started gathering disciples around himself and made a splash, was making a name for himself. What was his early ministry like? Well, Matthew chapters 5 through 7 give us the first big sample of the teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus dispensed God's truth with authority. Now, theme of authority continues, chapters 8 and 9, we get these nine episodes, these nine miraculous accounts of the works of Jesus, what he was doing also with God's authority. So by the end of that period regarding Jesus, excitement was rising, news was spreading. You know, could this Jesus really be the Messiah come to deliver God's people? But in chapters 11 and 12, a little air is let out of the balloon because it turns out not everyone was believing in Jesus or recognizing his authority. Some were starting to reject him, and the theme now becomes opposition. This is spearheaded by the religious leaders of Israel, that they were upset because Jesus did not recognize their authority over the people. In fact, he challenged it. He called them out as hypocrites. They could not let that stand, but the popularity of Jesus with the people at this point was sky high, and they were afraid of the people, So they they begin to whittle down his reputation through criticism, through slander. Something we saw last week really reaches a boiling point at the end of chapter 12, where they they commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, accusing Jesus of being Satan-filled. So chapters 11 and 12 here have a lot to do with the rising opposition to Jesus, but not exclusively. We also find peppered in these chapters Important scenes further revealing who Jesus is. And against the the backdrop of dark opposition, the light of Jesus shines brighter. And many were not believing in him, but that provided the occasion for him to testify concerning himself that we might behold him for who he really is. And that is what we have in store in the passage this morning. We have this single paragraph at the end of chapter 11, verses 25 through 30, This consists of a prayer of Jesus, followed by an invitation of Jesus. And though it's it's brief, this is dense. It's full of big revelations and bigger implications about God, Jesus, salvation. So much so, we're only going to make it through verses 25 through 27 this morning. It will provide more than enough to chew on. These verses provide a, a striking contrast with what came before. Back in verses 20 through 24, what was Jesus doing? We learned he was pronouncing judgment on the unbelieving. For example, back in verse 20, it says of Jesus, 
Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Jesus goes on to pronounce woe or God's wrath on that generation of Israel. They had witnessed the presence of the incarnate divine Messiah and most of his miracles, but that wasn't enough. They were hardened in unbelief. They slammed shut the only door of salvation. And when you do that, what's left except God's judgment? And that comes from Jesus himself. Still, though, after reading this, maybe you're left wondering, like, how could this be? The Jews, they were God's people. They saw Jesus in person working signs and wonders, but they still didn't believe. How do you you explain that? How do we explain the mass unbelief of Israel? How do we explain anyone's unbelief, whereas other people choose to believe? You should know that belief is never really a matter of evidence. Last week, we talked about all the excuses people give for denying God. And I I think a lack of evidence has to be the weakest excuse. Like, does God exist? Where do you think 100 million galaxies, each with 100 million stars, came from? Nothing? Creation testifies, Scripture clearly testifies, as Romans 1 says, that the knowledge of God is evident to all, but they have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Unbelief is never actually intellectual. It is always ethical. Romans 1.21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Unbelief really boils down to an unwillingness to submit one's life to God as Lord. This God is not going to tell me what to do or how to live. But such is just the blinding and enslaving power of sin. Evidence is not the issue, and this explains why All these people could witness Jesus and his miracles, and they still did not repent. Man's darkened and proud heart is the real issue. And it's so bad that unless God does something about it, unless he intervenes to do something, all humanity will just persist in that condition of unbelief and rebellion. It's true. All must repent and believe to be saved. It's just that no one will ever do that. Unless God opens their eyes. It is this fact that Jesus himself reveals in our passage this morning. We're not making this up. He says this. And this, you might say, accounts for the unbelief of Israel. Let's see what he says, though. Matthew 11. We're just going to go through verses 25 through 27. And you listen to what comes from the mouth of the Lord. Matthew 11, starting verse 25. It says, At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, you can say this passage contains a few icebergs. And by that, I mean you've got a few key truths just floating around here, and they just barely stick up above the water. They're they're barely referenced. But you go under the surface, and these issues are huge. They're vast. One issue here is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in salvation. This passage indicates 
that Jesus attributes our salvation not to the will of man, but to the will of God. The Father and the Son must reveal the way of salvation. But we know that God brings people to salvation in a way that does not eliminate their personal responsibility to repent and believe. Hence, the very next verse, Jesus invites all. Verse 28 says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. And so what this, this whole paragraph is, it just walks the knife's edge between man's responsibility and salvation and God's sovereignty in salvation. This is a huge issue. One, we, we want to get right. But again, being a, a bit of a shorter communion Sunday, this iceberg we will save entirely for next week. For this morning, we're going to explore that the other iceberg that surfaces here And that would have to do with just Christ himself, the person of Jesus himself. Who is this Jesus? Because you notice here, here we have Jesus testifying of himself and this unique relationship he has with the Father. And this too sheds light on the judgment of Israel and all the lost because when someone rejects Jesus, they're really rejecting God. And that's still the case. Altogether, many great mysteries of Jesus and salvation are revealed in this passage. And so between this week and next, we want to just dive under the surface and behold them. Today, we're going to go through verses 25 through 27. I want to point out four, I guess you could say, grand revelations of the Father and the Son and their grander implications. Four grand revelations of God the Father, God the Son, and their even grander implications. So let's do this. Number one, that the Father is sovereign over the world. It's the first point Jesus makes. Let's just hear from him. The Father is sovereign over the world. Look again at how verse 25 begins. He says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. This is a prayer of Jesus. He prays this out loud in front of others, which means kind of like the high priestly prayer. It it was also meant for the instruction of those who heard it. Jesus says, I praise you, Father. He does not address God impersonally or indirectly, but dearly as his Father. He does that in verse 26. does that in verse 27. God is his Father. Except that Jesus knows God as Father in a way no one else does. And he speaks of God as Father in a way no one else can. You know, the Jews back then, they never called God Father, Abba. They never did. It's just too close, too personal. We're not, God's not, not that close to us. But Jesus does, and he invites his disciples to do the same. Remember how he taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? It begins with, our Father who is in heaven. Through Christ, God becomes our Father as we become his adopted children. That being said, in verse 27, we'll see in a little bit, Jesus, as the divine son, he has a a unique, special relationship with God as his father, his divine father. But in verse 25, how else does Jesus identify God the father? He says, Lord of heaven and earth. Lord is a term for master or sovereign or ruler. God is the supreme ruler. Over what? Over everything. It doesn't get much more comprehensive than heaven and earth. He's Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, everything. Remember, this is the God who made heaven and earth. 
I'm sure you remember the very first verse of the whole Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. With just a word, he speaks all things into existence. And ever since, being that the Lord or sovereign over heaven and earth, his will of decree rules over all. God's will as sovereign is, is never thwarted. And yes, that even includes the existence of sin and evil, which God has sovereignly allowed for his greater purposes and greater glory. You must not forget that this same God, by his sovereignty, will bring to an eternal end all evil and rebellion in his judgment. But it is the Apostle Paul who, who picked up on this title for God as Lord of heaven and earth in his sermon to the men of Athens in Acts 17. He, he gets to Athens, he sees all these Greeks, and they're worshiping countless gods in ignorance, even an unknown God. But Paul declares to them the nature of the one true God. Just listen, Acts 17, 24. Paul says to them, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So letting them know, and you should know, like this is the God who, who made everything. He made all things, all people, all places, all nations. He doesn't need anything from you. You need everything from him. Your life, your breath, our lives, our eternities are in his hand. He's the sovereign. That's, that's what it means. The creator. He rules over all. And as Paul continues the next verse, Acts 17, 26, it says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That's just a little sample of God's sovereignty over all things. The rise, the fall of nations, all been appointed. We don't need to dwell on this much. This, this concept is familiar to us here, God's sovereignty over all things. Although we could, it's on every page of Scripture. This is what it means. He's God. We are not. This is part of what that means. What's telling, though, in our verse is that Jesus praises God for his comprehensive sovereignty, and so should we. Right? I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Despite witnessing all of his miracles, a lot of these people were rejecting him. But even still, he still praises God. Like most of us would probably lament, and some might even doubt God. Like, how could this be your plan? When things don't go the way we want, many of us question God, but not Jesus. People aren't believing. Does he question God? Does he complain or grumble against God? He, he never doubts. He, he praises God. He rests in the Father's comprehensive sovereignty over all things. Your will be done. Your plan will never be thwarted. And so for now, to begin, Jesus pauses is to glorify as God, as Father over all things. We should do the same. This leads to, though, a second revelation, number two. The Father reveals salvation according to his will. The Father reveals salvation according to his will. So go back to verse 25. Just think about this. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Why? That you have hidden these things, from the wise and intelligent have revealed them to infants. So Jesus, he's specifically praising God for two things, for hiding and revealing. He says, you have hidden these things. What's he talking about? What are, what are these things? 
Well, just given the context, just all about belief versus unbelief. It's the same with the parallel passage in Luke 7. There's really no doubt he's referring to just the truths of God, the way of salvation, the knowledge of the kingdom. These things cannot be found or discovered by man's ingenuity or merit. They must be revealed by God. But apparently these things can also be hidden by God. You see how Jesus praises God for hiding divine truth from the wise and intelligent while revealing it to infants. And so we're wondering, like, what does that mean? And to understand this, we need to, we need to get the reference. So like, who's he talking about? Who are the wise and intelligent? Who are the infants? Well, let's start with the latter. It should be fairly obvious Jesus is speaking figuratively. This, this term is not the one for children, but for infants. Like, literally those who they can't walk, they can't talk, they, they can't even take solid food. It's used for those who exist on milk alone. Just an infant. In fact, such infants can't do much of anything. They're entirely helpless. They're completely dependent on their parents for all things. And this is why children, and especially babies, are used throughout Scripture as a figure for those who are just helpless and dependent on the Lord. They're the meek, the humble, the lowly. This is why Jesus himself often referred to his disciples as little ones or his children. This is also what Jesus meant when he said, you must become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, what better picture is there of those who who confess their total dependence on God for all things, certainly their salvation. And so you can see now the contrast Jesus is forming between the infants, meaning that the humble, and the wise and intelligent. Christ's real point about infants has nothing to do with their age. Neither does his point about the wise and intelligent have anything to do with their education. This is not Jesus putting an IQ limit on kingdom admission. He's not against the intelligent. The Apostle Paul, maybe one of the most intellectually strong figures of the first century, who's an intellectual giant. And we're not called to check our brains at the door when we come to Christ. But know this, true wisdom, biblical knowledge, will breed humility. True wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. True knowledge begins recognizing God as creator. Both are humbling realities. The wise recognize that everything they have, everything they've accomplished, even still, it comes by the grace and mercy of God. What can they really boast of? They're just dust. The intelligent know there's no real knowledge, true knowledge to be found when you deny that this is God's world. Now, biblical wisdom and knowledge, they still produce a dependence on God, and they keep one from getting puffed up in pride. That's fine. But, but that is not how worldly wisdom and knowledge operate. Those are very much functions of man's pride. And this is why the one who rise or those who rise in the ranks of the intelligent, more often than not, they become puffed up. Right? They start to think of themselves as superior, as, as if they are truly better than others. And one's ego can even get so big that, that the intelligent start to sit in judgment of God, as if they are higher than God. They know better than God. They would do things better than God. If only they had the control, they would run this world so much better 
This is the very definition of vainglory. No man by his intellect can add a single day to his life. And everyone will eventually discover their mortality. And then when they stand before God, they will quickly learn that their intellect cannot deliver them from his hand. Their supposed intelligence has led them to reject God and Christ, the only Savior. And so, like these Jews here, what's left for them except judgment? You can see here, though, in referring to the wise and the intelligent, Jesus means the opposite of the humble and dependent, and that would be the proud and self-reliant. Those who trust in themselves to stand before God. Those who rely on human wisdom, not God's. There's no fear of God in them. You need to know, from Genesis to Revelation, this, this truth holds everywhere in Scripture. That God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Like Psalm 138, verse 6, it says, For though the Lord is exalted, he regards the lowly, but the haughty, the pride, he knows from afar. God's gives, uh, he's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Now, what's special about verse 25 here is Jesus reveals how God opposes the proud, how he gives grace to the humble. And how is that? It's by revealing and concealing the way of salvation. Again, you see how Jesus now praises the Father for hiding divine truth from the wise and intelligent. And hidden here means, means just that, to conceal, to cover up. It's as if God is blinding their eyes and hardening their heart that they may not find the way of salvation. Meanwhile, it says God reveals this way to infants. Reveal is apocalypto, just the word for revelation. It literally means to, to unveil something, to lift a veil from something, to reveal that which was hidden. And to the meek, to the humble, God makes manifest the way of salvation. He opens eyes and softens hearts that dependent sinners might find the narrow door into his kingdom. I mean, with this statement, it it almost sounds like Jesus is saying God is sovereign over man's salvation. And that he reveals salvation according to his will. And that is exactly what Jesus is saying. He says the exact same thing in John 12. Just listen But listen carefully, John 12, 37 through 40. It says of Jesus that though he had performed so many signs before them, the Jews, yet they were not believing in him. It says in verse 39 of John 12, for this reason, they could not believe. Why could they not believe? He says, for Isaiah said again, that God has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. We're going to find the exact same sentiment showing up pretty soon in Matthew 13, a few pages over, where Jesus starts to speak to the people in parables. And you realize why he was doing that, this very mysterious way of teaching. He did that to both reveal the truth and conceal the truth at the same time. His parables were an indictment on the Jews. They had hardened themselves, and so the truth was being taken away from them. We see in Matthew 13, 11, he'll say to his disciples, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them, it has not been granted. Kind of sounds like it's up to him, but the leaders of Israel, they had reached peak hardness of heart. And so whatever light they had now is even being taken away. They're being confirmed 
in their unbelief. The truth is now being concealed from them. What Jesus says here in verse 25, it, it might catch you off guard. I mean, it'd be one thing if Jesus, he, he only praises God for revealing the way to infants. Okay, that's, that's very nice of God. He's re- showing people the way. That's nice. But Jesus equally praises God for hiding the way from the so-called wise. That doesn't sound very nice. But is God being unjust? Would you accuse him of being unjust? He's opposed to the proud. Could you not say he's, he's giving them what they deserve? That they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They exchanged the glory of God for a lie. So why shouldn't he hand them over to the darkness? We'll find the real marvel is that God in his mercy would, would save anybody, would show the way to anybody, for in reality all of us are hardened, lost, unbelieving sinners. All of our hearts were darkened. God reveals his way sovereignly. The Father reveals salvation according to his will. Now, there's, there's a lot more to this subject. Like I said, it's like an iceberg. That's, that's just the little tip of this vast subject. Just mentioning that probably leaves you with like a million questions. Just how much does our salvation depend on God's will, and what about man's will? And these questions are not to be evaded. Scripture speaks to them. We, we need to wrestle with them. I'm sorry to just keep teasing you, but we will do so next week. We, we will have all the time we need to, to handle that iceberg next week. For now, though, just let what Jesus reveals about the Father sit with you. The fact remains, he reveals salvation according to his will. And Jesus, look at verse 26, he, he doubles down on this sentiment. He doesn't backpedal. He doesn't give a caveat. Verse 26, he says, yes, Father, for this way of concealing and revealing was well-pleasing in your sight. Now, far from criticizing God, as many people do, Jesus delights in God's sovereignty. Whatever pleases the Father pleases him. I mean, who is man to answer back to God? We're just animated dust. Can we contend with the Almighty? At the very least, we should share this high view of God's sovereignty. However much you understand of it, we should share just Christ's view of it. We should praise God for it. He's Lord of heaven and earth. That includes us and even our salvation. Now, like I said, as much as this passage speaks volumes to God and his sovereignty. It, it says just as much about Jesus and his sovereignty, and that's what we're going to focus the rest of our time on. I want you now to notice the parallel. The first point we made was that the Father is sovereign over salvation. As we turn to verse 27, we find the third point. The Son is sovereign over the world. Rather, the Father is sovereign over the world. Now, as the third point, the Son is sovereign over the world. You'll see how they share the same role. Verse 27, it, it's a big, just for one verse, it's, it says a lot. It's a big verse. Verse 27, where Christ says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So remember, Jesus started off by praising the Father for his sovereign will. But now he's speaking about himself in relation to the Father. And what you have to recognize here is that Jesus is speaking on another level. 
He's revealing his true relationship with God as his father. And in so doing, revealing his true identity. And notice the careful wording of verse 27. He says that all things have been handed over to me by my father. And then he says, nobody knows me except the son or except the father. No, he says, nobody knows the son except the father. You see now he starts referring to himself third person as the son. This is not Jesus as a child of God or a son of God. He is claiming to be the son of God. This is a divine title. How do we understand this? Well, you see here how Jesus, he's claiming this unique reciprocal knowledge between the father and the son. Nobody knows the son except the father. You may think like, wait, wait, I mean, a lot of people know Jesus. His mother, the 12 disciples, they, they know Jesus. That's not what he means. It's made evident by the fact that he does not use the normal word for no, gnosko. He uses the intensified form, epigonosko, meaning like nobody really knows the son except the father and vice versa. Nobody really knows the father except the son. So he's expressing this intimate mutual knowledge and relationship between God the father and God the son. And so here Jesus, he's just ever so slightly lifting the veil, exposing us to some of the the intra-Trinitarian relationship that exists and the special union there is between the divine father and son. Jesus, as the son, possesses the unique sight of the father. John 6, 46, he says, nobody has seen the father except the one who is from God. He has seen the father. Jesus possesses the unique teaching of the father. John 7, 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus possesses the unique presence of the Father. John 8, 29, he said, he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. And Jesus possesses the unique mission of the Father. John 8, 42, I have proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. And the more you study this unique, co-eternal, co-equal relationship between the Father and the Son, the more it's, it's not shocking when Jesus says in John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. You remember right after that, the Jews picked up stones to kill him, to stone him to death. And why they do that? They said, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. It's actually the right conclusion. It's just the wrong reaction because his words and his works testified it. It's actually true. They failed to grasp that Jesus was God incarnate, sent by God. And why was he sent? Why was the son sent into the world? The big overall reason was to represent the father, to represent God, to reveal God. Jesus as the son, he's also the unique representation of, of the Father. He came to reveal God to the people. John 1.18 says, nobody has seen God at any time. Then it says, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Not only does that verse refer to Jesus as God, but it shows his purpose. He came to explain, reveal, manifest God to us in a way we could understand. So here's this picture. You have this sovereign God looking over this world. What does he see? He sees a world sitting in darkness. 
man in his rebellion against him, it's as if man has gouged out his own eyes, refusing to see and submit to the glory of God. Instead, he's become enslaved to sin and Satan. And hence, Ephesians 2.12 says that man is without hope and without God in the world. And that used to be us. How did we all live back then, like the Gentiles? Ephesians 4.17. We used to live like them in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves, themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. When God sees this world, he sees none righteous, not even one, Romans 3, none who seek after him, not truly. And in response, he would be perfectly just just to leave us be and awaiting his judgment. But we realize in his mercy and in his real love, he he created this plan of redemption that he might draw us to himself. And in Christ, he's bringing that plan to pass. He chose to reveal himself to open blind eyes, shining his glory through Christ. This is why it said back in Matthew chapter 4, when the ministry of Jesus in Galilee began, it said this, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. That, that finally there was, there was some hope In this world of darkness, throughout the ages, God has sent many prophets, even angels, like little candles to to share a little bit of the light of God with the people. But in these last days, he sent forth his son to shine like the sun over the land. So Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, And in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. And you know, what Jesus is saying in our verse, he's saying he is that son. He is that divine son, the son of God. These are not the claims of any man or angel. Either Christ is Lord, like C.S. Lewis reasoned, or he's liar, or he's lunatic. But this is why Christ the Lord came. He came to reveal the Father to us in a way only he can that we might be reconciled to God as our Father. He did so in a way we could understand why he came as a man. Philippians 2, 6, though existing in the form of God, he humbled himself and took on the form of a man. And he became that perfect mediator between God and man that, that we might be brought back to our creator. So in verse 27, when Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father, No one knows the Father except the Son. He is expressing his truly unique divine relationship with the Father, which in turn means he's the only way to the Father. He's the only one who can reveal the Father. And this is why Jesus could later say in John 14, verse 9, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so now it makes a little more sense. Verse 27 at the beginning when he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things is emphatic in the, in the beginning. It has to be taken universally. As the divine Son, what belongs to the Father belongs to the Son. God is called Lord of heaven and earth. Well, guess what? 
you know that Jesus also is called Lord of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of lords. He possesses the same divine power, sovereignty, and authority as the Father. Matthew's gospel ends with Jesus saying, Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The Father is the creator, sustainer, and ruler of all things. Well, again, guess what? Jesus is presented as the creator, sustainer, and ruler of all things. This Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. All things have been made through him and for him, Colossians 1.16. And he, all, in him all things hold together, Colossians 1.17. And then back to Hebrews 1, as the divine son, it says he has been appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and this Jesus, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. You put all this together, it's very clear that what Jesus said of the Father, the Father is sovereign over the world. That's also true of himself. The Son is sovereign over the world. As Lord and Messiah, this, this great son of David, this perfect mediator between God and man. Jesus is God's king, this mediatorial king, the one who will represent God's rule over this creation for all time. And so with this in mind, it shouldn't surprise you to see the parallel between father and son continue. We saw the, the father is sovereign over the world. Well, guess what? The son is sovereign over the world. We saw how the father reveals salvation according to his will. And here, point number four, the son reveals salvation according to his will. And finishing with this, you see at the end of verse 27, he sneaks in this, this one little phrase, but it likewise has a world of significance. So one more time, verse 27. This is Christ saying, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know this, the father except the son. And then, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Who knows the Father? Nobody. Like, we're, we're no man. We're lost. We're blind. We're rebels. We're cut off from God. No man knows the Father. The only exception is Jesus, the Son. He knows the Father. But Jesus makes his own exception. Being the mediator to bring us to God, he can reveal the Father to us, and he does so according to his will. The divine son must reveal the father to us, but to whom does Jesus reveal? It seems like it's up to him because he says to anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. It kind of sounds like salvation does not depend on man who wills or man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That's Romans 9.16. The verse right before that, you have God himself saying, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Now have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But the point here is that Father and Son are united in that sovereignty over salvation. They were both reveal salvation according to their united will. Again, we're seeing that the interface between God's will and man's will in salvation. It's this is a key verse in that discussion. It's not an easy discussion, but it needs a to be you know, played out. We're continuing to punt that to next week, but at the very least for now, 
you should accept the fact, as Jesus states it, just as a fact, that the Son, like the Father, reveals salvation according to his will. Now, we think about this verse, this passage. I told you it's, it's dense, but this is the Lord revealing some, some key mysteries about himself and our salvation. Especially on a communion Sunday, I think it's fitting for us to, to focus our attention on Christ himself and what this passage reveals about him as our Savior. And to, to finish up here, there are some massive implications about Jesus that we would do well to take to heart. So let's consider these to, to finish. The first Jesus is the divine Lord. We've labeled this point enough. Maybe you take it for granted. As a good Christian, you believe Jesus is God, but look, it's worth restating. What Jesus claims here, it, it, it cannot be said of any man or angel. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. And that's, that's a take it or leave it proposition. You either recognize it, and therefore you bow down to him as God and worship, or you have to reject him entirely. There's none of this business where you say, like, Jesus, he's just a good teacher. Or he's, he's a religious figure. He's, he's an, a special angel. No, this Christ claimed to be one with the Father, co-eternal, co-equal with God. If that's not true, he's not a good person. He's to be rejected entirely as a false teacher. But if that is true, you should, like Thomas, bow down and say, my Lord and my God. In worship. Jesus later will ask his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? That's a question everyone will have to answer, either here or on the day of judgment. And I pray you see him now as the divine Lord, that God will, will shine in your heart to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And when you come to see Jesus for who he is, you, you get the second implication, that there is salvation in no one else. And you, you probably take it for granted, but, but don't. Being the God-man, the mediator between God and man, that there's no other Savior. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name. There's no other way. There's no other gate. There's no other door to this kingdom. It's a familiar verse, but he means it. John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. We know that first, but it's, it's really, really true. There's, there's no access to God, to the Father, to his kingdom, but through this Christ, the Son. If you reject Christ as your only hope, you're, you're sealing yourself off from his kingdom. And don't do that. Don't shut your eyes to his light. Listen to John 1, 9 through 13. As John speaking, he says, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's that sovereignty tease again. You were born again, not of the will of man, but of the will of God. Still, we must receive him, and from our side, Jesus came to his own, the Jews. They, they did not receive him. They were hardened in heart. But those who did receive him in humble, childlike faith, they believed in his name. He gave to them the right to become children of his God. The Jews stumbled over a few things. 
They had a hard time believing their God would, would take on human flesh. More so, they had a hard time believing that their Messiah would come and that he would die this shameful, defeated death on a cross. They, they choked on that, which is too bad because they failed to realize that the cross was not actually a defeat, but a victory. For he conquered our sin and rose from the grave in power. And this Christ now shares the spoils of that victory with all who believe in him and who are not ashamed of the cross. I can only hope that now you will receive this Christ, that you too believe in him. You behold in him the the wisdom of God. As Colossians 2.3 says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Look, I, I am fully aware that everything I said this morning, everything Jesus says this morning, to those in the world, they think we are completely crazy. Like this is all utter nonsense to those who don't believe. We are fools. But we know this, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 25. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And so I would invite you this morning to set aside the world's wisdom and and partake a little bit of the Lord's foolishness because it's still greater. And as a final implication then, humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before God. However much you understand of this whole God's sovereignty issue, you know this, he's opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble. The Son, he will reveal the Father to those who come like infants, meek and mild. So, you just do this. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Do you know why it's so hard for the intelligent to enter the kingdom? And Christ will say later why it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. Why, why do you say that? It's not because education and wealth are evil. They're not. It's because those who possess intelligence and money, they're, they're quite often self-reliant, as if they are the reason for their success. And this just means that they have a far greater distance to travel to get down to the foot of the cross. They have a lot more humbling to go through before they can go and crawl on their knees to the Savior asking for his mercy. They have to leave their ivory tower and come to him like a baby, confessing their complete dependence on him for everything. It just turns out that many of the wise and the rich, they refuse to do that. And such is pride. But just know that everybody is proud until they're about to die. Death is the great humbler. Can't be avoided. It's the end of every man. I've seen several in pride come to the end and they get humble real fast. But how many people think like, well, I'll get right with God on my deathbed. I'll live as I please now and I'll settle accounts with him before I die. But if you think that, you just... You don't know how hardness of heart works. You will not have the opportunity you think you have to find him and call on him on that day. If you turn away from conviction now, why shouldn't God keep hidden the way of salvation from you as you've already slammed the door shut? Why shouldn't he seal you in unbelief like he did those who rejected the Christ? No, rather, as it says in Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
You need to see that your days are numbered. You will die. You will stand before this God. Let that reality humble you. And also be humbled by your sin. Yours, mine. Think of all the wrong you have done your whole life. All the, the evil deeds and thoughts you have committed, your betrayals, your crimes, your immoralities, your injustices. Let your own sin humble you. Then, though, you, you take it to Christ. You see Christ, the Savior. This is why he came, to put that all away, to erase that as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. He came to die in your place, to pay your penalty. Only then, when you're humbled by your sin, will you cry out to him as your Savior. Only then will he hear you and then know and rest assured that he will receive all who come to him, meek, humble, and poor in spirit, like an infant. If you've come here this morning like this, let us leave continuing to cling to this Christ all of our days. He's all we have. Let us live daily in dependence on him. We need him every hour. And let us now join him, praising God for his sovereign gift of salvation. Let's do that now in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we, we, we stand before you this morning after considering your word, which is as rich and deep and profound. We know to the world, we are fools. Your word is foolish, but to us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we see your word is wise and unsearchable and profound. It, we can never plumb the depths of your revelation for you are God. You're limitless. And we could never know you on our own. For we've all gone astray. Each of us, like sheep, have, has turned to his own way. And we would persist in that way of darkness and death if you did not reveal yourself. And you did so through the Son in these last days. We are so thankful the Son has come, that upon the land a great light has shone in the face of Christ. We thank you for, for us here who call on him, that only by your grace have you revealed him to us. This is why we don't boast, but we, we give you the glory for revealing yourself and your, the way to you through Christ and his death on the cross. And we, we always pray for any here who might not know you. You lift the veil from their eyes, humble them before the, uh, you and, and over their sin. You, you are full of grace toward the meek and the humble. We pray you do that work, that others would, would see the joy, and our joy would be made full. When you have Christ, you have all things. In him are the treasures of wisdom, knowledge, and life everlasting. We give glory to Christ this morning. We pray we do that each and every day. The Savior is, is the way, the truth, and the life. It's in, in his name we pray. Amen.